Good to see each of you. Uh, this morning we will continue our summer in the Psalm series. Our children are welcome to be dismissed for their lesson. And if you are our guest with us and you have children of that age, you're welcome to follow them back, meet the workers, see the conditions downstairs, and then join us back up here. If you just take a glance at Psalm 45, you're going to look down and it really divides into two sections and and it's part of its uniqueness and its oddity because the first half talks about a human king who is unidentified and the second half talks about his foreign bride who is also unidentified. The online news site The Hustle reported that Subway the most ubiquitous sandwich franchise on the planet. There is a subway in Lusaka, Zambia that we went to. There was a subway in Tamarindo, Costa Rica that we went to last week. And I was told, no, Tamarindo is a great spot. They speak English, except at Subway. And I had no idea. I saw something and I just said, poor favor, Italiano, spicy O. No, it wasn't that bad. Um, but I found something that resembled spicy Italian and I ordered one. Uh, for my son, and so Subway is everywhere. But they go on to report, Subway has been facing an ongoing lawsuit that claims its tuna sandwiches contain no tuna. In the latest update to the saga, the New York Times had 60 inches of Subway's tuna sandwiches tested in a lab and found, quote, no amplifiable tuna DNA present in the sample. This means either, one, whatever Subway uses isn't tuna, Hmm. Or two, the tuna they use is so processed that the DNA is untraceable. They finish the article by saying this makes you wonder about the meatball subs. <laughs> That's kind of how Psalm 45 feels at first when you read it, that there's no traceable DNA of a personal God. You've just come through Psalm 42 and 43 and then 44, where the king is leading his people, probably what it's through exile. And there's all these terms for the Elohim God, the, the almighty God, and, and even mentions of Yahweh, a personal God. But Psalm 45 is a wedding song, highlighting the marriage of a king to a king's daughter. And when you study it out, it is most likely not a romance song, but a political marriage designed to unify nations. And you wonder sometimes, how does that fit in the Old Testament hymn book? How do we then, displaced thousands of years later, use Psalm 45 in worship? Much spiritualizing has been done with this psalm. For instance, the king is the Lord, he's the groom, and the church is his bride. But there's a major problem with that. Nowhere in the New Testament is that connection made. So you could spiritualize it, right? And much spiritualizing has been done, but the fact is, it's sloppy exegesis to force that connection. So what does Psalm 45 say, and why is it in the Psalms? For starters, there is a contrast between the human king in Psalm 44 in one of his most difficult circumstances, leading a nation through the gloom of exile, contrasted now with a king from the Davidic line who is in not his darkest moment, but probably one of his most radiant celebratory moments. It's a lot like life, if you think about it. Our life contains both gloom, Psalm 44, 
and glory, Psalm 45. Hardship and blessing, failure and success, faith and doubt. Psalm 45 becomes a microcosm of life even at one of its best moments. Like Psalm 44, it is also very helpful that Psalm 45 is referenced, one verse is referenced in the New Testament, and that will be where we then point and take our application in the year 2021. Let's first look at the verses to the king. I've not read the psalm in its entirety because we're going to read it as we work through it. But these are verses to the king, Psalm 45, verses 1 to 9. And the section now is going to focus on the king after the poet, the psalmist, the writer, spends just a line talking about himself because he's inspired to write this. And then he's going to focus on the king's beauty and attributes. Look at verse 1. The psalmist writes, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses, here's the subject, to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. It's as if the writer is watching this setting, watching this celebration, watching this wedding ceremony, and he is inspired to record what he sees. It's a grand experience, much like those moments or sites that move modern artists to write music or to paint or to write poetry. He begins to explain the appearance, the attributes, and the character of the king. Look at verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Right? He's physically attractive. Now, I know what most of you men are thinking, right? This song could have easily been written about Pastor Steve. No, you, you thought it could be written about you, right? No, there's something about this king, probably not David nor Solomon. There's something about this king who comes through the line of handsome men. Do you remember Absalom? He wasn't a good man. He wasn't a great son to his father, David, but he was mentioned for being beautiful. There's something when he sees this wedding ceremony that prompts him to write, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. He's a wise and kind and gifted orator. Therefore, God has blessed you. And I want you to see the next word. Because he's referencing a human king whose lifespan has boundaries. But he says this, therefore God has blessed you. What's the next word? Forever. It is the first of three uses of that word in Psalm 45. So even though there's this human realm and something as mundane, if you would, as a wedding ceremony, all of a sudden in the second verse, you have this word forever. Then look at verse three. Gird your sword on your thigh, Almighty One, in your splendor and majesty. So what you have in focus now is a warrior king, not a passive ruler. And this probably rules out the fact that it's, that it's not Solomon, but this is a warrior, battle-proven king. Look at verse 4. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause. So as a master warrior, as a king, who mounts his horse, sword on his side. He rides forward on a mission. And I want you to see the mission. It really provides proper motivation for every godly person. Keep reading in verse 4. Ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. 
the peoples fall under you. That is a stunning picture of a warrior king armed, taking down his enemies and nations bowing down or, or dying because of his battle campaign. The cause of this war for the cause of truth, meekness or humility and righteousness. Do you know those three terms combined really help shape a mission for godly men and godly women? Truth. This is more than just accuracy. When the Bible talks about truth, he's talking about enduring reliability and firmness. Stability. For us, that means a life and a mission shaped and directed by God's word. Even this morning, as I was talking with Josh in the corner room, he talks about tier one of their mission and tier two of their mission. And the reason they they fall in that order is because of God's word shaping that mission. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus, when praying to his own father, said this in John 17, 17, your word is truth. So as the king girds on his weapon and he rides forth victorious, he is motivated by truth. The second word is humility or meekness. Meekness is simply strength under control. And if you have this kind of a king, if he turns evil and autocratic, he is a mess for the nations. You want this kind of king to be governed by humility and by meekness, which is strength under control. Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, said this, The root of all virtue and grace, of all faith and acceptable worship, is that we know that we have nothing but what we receive and bow in deepest humility to wait upon God for it. Even with the highest title, king, this ruler understands his rightful position in the presence of Almighty God. The king also is governed by righteousness. That simply means to meet your responsibilities. This king has the status of having fulfilled the expectations that have been harnessed upon him with that title. Now, the king is never mentioned by name, but it's easy to see down through the Davidic line. And we're going to be pointed that direction by three mentions of the word forever, then forever and ever. And then the third time forever and ever. So we kind of see past this wedding ceremony through the Davidic line and God's promises to us to see another king who was not only guided by truth, but a man who actually said this, I am the way, the, the truth and the life. No one goes unto the Father except through me, Jesus said. He is really the only human that was completely humble. He often told his followers that in order to be first, you need to become last. And to give them a visible display, he washed the disciples' dirty feet. It says in his humility, he took on humanity. He laid aside his rights as the Son of God. He took on humanity and suffered death, even the aggravated form of death on the cross. The King of Kings is truth and he is humble and he is also the only man completely righteous for he is the only one who lived perfectly and fulfilled all the righteous standards God had put forward. He was in all times tempted like as we are yet without sin. 
He's also the only one who could die for the unrighteous of others, unrighteousness of others, and offer his own righteousness to them. So it's easy to see past this human king and start to see without spiritualizing the promise of another king in the Davidic line. So this morning we know a king who is worthy of praise. Not just the beautiful description of Psalm 45, but of all the Psalms and all the prophets and all the scriptures, which in Luke chapter 24, Jesus took the two disciples back to and he began to expound to them the things concerning himself, even out of the Psalms. Notice how the, the section moves, because now in verse four, the psalmist expresses three hopeful wishes for this human king and really, again, look forward through the Davidic line to another king first. The psalmist desires the king's right hand, verse 4, teach him. The idea here is to display awesome deeds. You have this trained, battle-hardened warrior king who is beautiful and gracious and kind, who is meek and righteous. But the idea is that of an expert who is going forth and that his training is revealed on the battlefield. Our sensei would tell us when we trained under him, he would say this, don't train to fight, train to prevail. And if you have this kind of king leading your nation, that's the kind of king you want. One who is going out not just to create a skirmish, but one who is riding out majestically to conquer. He also hopes the kings, verse 5, sharpened arrows will find their way into the hearts of the enemies. So the psalmist really is wishing that the flight of the precision of his arrows hits the spot. And then finally, also verse 5, he desires that nations will fall under his feet. Revelation 19, if we, if we really look all the way down that Davidic line of kings, Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, provides a healthy counterbalance to what I call the soft Jesus is my buddy culture found in so many churches. Listen to what Revelation 19 says. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, these are terms that Psalm 45 uses. Faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and listen to this and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And if you're wondering still who it is, it says this in verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that application is not unwarranted because now in verse 6, what seems to be a surprise turn He actually addresses God. Look at Psalm 45, verse 6. He talks about the human king, and now he sort of changes focus upward, and he says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And that's the second time the word forever is used, accompanied by the word forever and 
ever. And this is the one line in the entire psalm that will be referenced in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 to 9. And what Hebrews does is presents Jesus, the Son, as the ultimate king, beautiful, powerful, conquering, humble, infinitely high, and eternal forever and ever. You know, forever is a long time. Do you remember when the first time as a child you thought about eternity? How many of you remember that time? There's three of us. <laughs> I remember as a child, I don't know, I was just thinking about forever and ever and ever and eternity and trying to comprehend with my finite mind an eternity that I have never experienced before because I've only been in this body within time. But I remember at one point it almost felt like my mind opened up and I couldn't stand anymore. And I just had to shake my head and be like, how is that even possible? Do you know forever is a very long time? Are you ready for it? Are you ready for the forever and ever and ever and ever? I hope so. Because there is a beautiful king of grace who came to the earth to rescue you from eternal death which Revelation calls the second death. And this king, this rescuer, comes to do battle and wage war. We saw that in, in, in Revelation 19. And his arrows are sharp, and he has a sword, and nations will fall at his feet. Look at verse 6, the second part. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So all of a sudden, this king has a, th a sword and a throne and now a scepter. And these are the marks of a warrior king. And you actually think of the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest, literally rule and authority will rest upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called, you know this, basically from the Christmas prophecy, but this is a child who then is going to be revealed as who? The mighty God and the everlasting Father forever and ever. Look at verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, he's, he's sort of shifting back now to the human king. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 8. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces. Now, some of you older saints might be saying at this point, wait a minute, I think that's recorded in Scripture too. But what you're actually thinking of is an old hymn, right? Out of the ivory palaces. I thought about closing with that this morning until I listened to it. And I was like, there's no way we're closing with that. It's, no, it's really no longer singable or accessible. The words are beautiful. Um, but that, that's hymn, a hymn, right? We know the distinction here at Islands. A hymn is not breathed out by God. Scripture is. Okay, so though it's familiar and beautiful, this is what Scripture says. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. He's simply now describing the wedding ceremony in all its opulence and beauty and luxury. Rich garments, beautiful music, prestigious company gathered at the ceremony of the wedding of the king. Solomon was known for a political marriage, actually many political marriages. And as we, we shift towards the bride, I want to read to you 1 Kings 3, 1, where it says this. 
Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. And it's going to set the platform for what you're going to see. You had verses to the king, and now there's going to be some verses to the queen. And in 1 Kings 9.16, it says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. Again, Psalm 45 is probably not about that, but it is a similar political union. This king is handsome yet humble, majestic yet meek, feared yet gracious. He is a beautiful warrior man. Now look at the second section. We're going to move through this quickly. The bride now in Psalm 45 verse 10 is depicted as a daughter forsaking her people and her land. Look at verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Simply what you have here is a princess leaving her parents and her country. There's really nothing more to draw out from that except the beauty of this wedding ceremony. But it's easy to see this. This really is when you're when you look at a king and the choice that this princess has made to leave her family and her land for the king. It's easy to see the choice every believer makes when they follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who is king, not just savior. He is a savior, but he's also a king. He's a Lord. Matter of fact, Peter said this in Luke 18, 28. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. When you value the king like Psalm 45 does, you will see the princess then forsake family and lands and worship him, honor him. More specifically, we can also see the choice foreign gospel workers make when they bow the knee to their king and follow him to proclaim good news to the ends of the earth. And the king gives them this promise, lo, I am with you even until the ends of the age. Verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold in many colored robes. She is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. And if you go back to the descriptions, there's probably ivory framed carvings or or pictures and you have muse, stringed music being played in the background. This is an incredible setting. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Look at verse 16 in place of your fathers. OK, so she had to leave her family, but there's a replacement in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. This is the hope of a Davidic line that is going to be perpetuated into the future. Verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you. Here's the third time this phrase is used forever and ever. So we're given this hint, not so subtly, three times that this is more than just a historic wedding. This has something to do with eternity. How are we, thousands of years later, to apply this? How are we to interpret this psalm when it seems like the Davidic 
monarchy ended. Here are two ways. Historically and prophetically. Historically, the monarchy was an important part of Israel's experience through which they both understood themselves, their own identity, because they understood God. The kings, especially David, provided continuity that gave expression of worship and relationship in a real world to this divine promise that God made to Abraham that he would give them a nation and give them land. That's what that did historically. And of course, you see this monarchy, this Davidic line being carried forward. But prophetically, beyond the historical context, which we have to see, because Jesus does this in Luke 24 when he starts to expound in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Prophetically, they saw the promise of a future king. Not as clearly as we see it, but the promise was there ever since Genesis. Psalm 45, 2, God has blessed you forever. Psalm 45, 17, nations will praise you forever and ever. And Psalm, the one in the middle, Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In conclusion, take your scriptures and turn to Hebrews chapter 1, where that scripture is then quoted in the New Testament. What the, what the book of Hebrews does is it says that this God of Psalm 45, verse 6, is the ultimate king himself, humble, infinitely high and eternal, and it is none other than Jesus Christ. Turn to Hebrews 1. Let's go, let's go to the first chapter. I want you to see how the book begins. We had, we had drawn out in Psalm 44 how the, the, the nation of Israel is what is most likely in exile. And they are saying, God, why are you silent? Why don't you speak? And remember, we compared that to Elijah taunting the prophets of Baal with their own God, right? Apparently he's away. He's on vacation or he's relieving himself. I mean, Elijah gets quite crass to make his point. But now in, in, in a turn in Psalm 44, God's people are crying out, why are you silent? Why haven't you spoken? Have you forgotten us? These are legitimate questions from believing people. But I want you to see in Hebrews 1 how the writer of Hebrews opens up. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God, what's the next word? He spoke. So God does speak, though at times he's silent. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Listen to what it says about this king. After making purification for sins, he sat down like a priest, though priests, human priests would never sit down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, now let me ask you, does this verse look familiar now? Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's Psalm 45. 
The passage makes three points about Jesus Christ, the son. First, Jesus, God's son, has a throne. He is a king. Second, the nature of his rule is stated as eternal forever and ever and upright and righteous. That is the specific contribution of Psalm 45 to the Hebrews argument. And third, everything said about the king in Psalm 45, though not quoted here in Hebrews 1, is repeated about Jesus in the New Testament. Except that Isaiah says this, he wasn't handsome. He was very difficult to look at. And by the time they were done torturing and beating him, you couldn't even tell that he was human anymore. But Hebrews will say this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame as a victorious king for his people. We need to remember this. Human kings failed. Even the good ones David failed through a double sin. Solomon tried to reconcile his love for women with his love for God. Even the good kings failed. And what you have in the Old Testament is sort of this this repeated cycle that goes around and around with all three offices, priest, prophet, and king. A priest was the mediator between humans and God, but human priests, there's this cycle that goes law and then obedience, and then disobedience, and then sacrifice and atonement, and then obedience, and then disobedience, and sin. And, and what, when you get done reading the law in the Old Testament, what it leaves you desiring is a perfect priest who can break the cycle. That's exactly what Jesus did. It leaves you desiring a perfect priest. Because every human priest failed in their duty. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And in the book you're open to, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says this, Since we have a great high priest, you've gathered at a church that still is identified on our church sign as a Baptist church, but do you know you have a priest? You have a high priest. And you need a high priest to break the cycle of sin. Hebrews 4 says, We have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us therefore hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, with this exception, yet he did it without sin. And Hebrews 10, 11 says this, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, listen to what he did. No human priest ever did this. He sat down. Why? Because his work was done. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We have a perfect priest. We also have a perfect prophet. All the prophets of the Old Testament failed. Do you know Isaiah Isaiah ran around naked? Jonah ran the other way. Jeremiah couldn't run around because he had this huge yoke for an oxen around his neck. And he became the laughingstock of all the popular preachers of his day. But do you know that Isaiah and Jeremiah were actually obeying God? Read, Read their books. Yet their message never went forward with full success. Matter of fact, Isaiah cried out in Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? We preach and no one obeys it. 
And when you get done reading the prophets, both the major and the minor, what you are left desiring is a perfect prophet. You know what John 1 says? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said to one of His followers, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know Me, Philip? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect revelation of who the Father really is. Matter of fact, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, listen to the term he chooses, of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And then He goes and He says this, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And what he's referring to is the Scriptures that have revealed the Son. We have a perfect prophet. And finally, because we talked about a king, every king failed. And it leaves the reader desiring a perfect king. Revelation 19.16 says this. Jesus is given this full title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Revelation 17, 14, it switches those and it says, Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And what that title is doing is it's indicating there is someone who has the power to exercise absolute dominion and authority over a realm, over a kingdom. And he is identified as Jesus Christ. Are you ready for him? Either his return or are you ready to stand face to face to Him? Because Philippians gives you this warning. God has highly exalted Him, Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, whether saved or unsaved, will confess, finally, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is a king, and thankfully, he is a good one, and he is a savior. I'm going to ask our music team to come forward and get in place. I'm going to read one final passage this morning from 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice in the facts and the truths he just communicated in that you rejoice, though now. For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why those trials, right? Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, 
You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, our living God.